Yeah, I wanted to join early, but then I was in the whole world of writing unit tests. Monica Powell, welcome to FS Jam Podcast. Really happy to have you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, why don't you just uh, let our listeners know who you are, what you do, what sort of stuff you're working on. You've got a, a whole bunch of projects that we're, we're going to get into. Okay, sounds great. Hi, everyone. I'm Monica Powell. I am a software engineer who is involved in somewhat in the open source community, as well as during normal times running in-person events. So I run a meetup called React Ladies for women and non-binary React developers and have collaborated with a lot of different tech organizations based in New York City. And outside of um, the community organizing, I also write educational articles on my blog tailored to other web developers, specifically in like the whole JavaScript ecosystem and have taught um, some uh, lessons on the website egghead.io. Yeah, Egghead's amazing. Anytime I hear someone is like a teacher for Egghead, I'm like, all right, cool. You know what you're doing then. <laughs> One of the first things I noticed is you are very framework agnostic. Your website sneakily is built in Gatsby. You've put work on there in Next. And obviously we know you through Redwood. So the first question, spicy or not, is what's your favorite framework and your least favorite? Oh, wow. That's a tough question. I think the different frameworks definitely have their own like strengths and weaknesses. For a long time, I really was a huge fan of the Gatsby um, open source software. So I built my website and I was really invested in that. I previously worked at a company where we were migrating over to Gatsby. So also had some experience working with Gatsby on a larger website. A lot of what my initial introduction to um, using GraphQL on the client side was definitely thanks to um, Gatsby and getting a sense of like how to interact um, with the data from my website within the GraphQL playground. So I definitely have like a sweet spot for Gatsby. I think that there's definitely a lot of excitement about the new approaches or re the reinvented approaches maybe. Uh, depending on who you ask that Next is bringing to the, the table in terms of like server-side capabilities and having more dynamic support for API um, routes and such. And then I'm also super excited, I would say, about Redwood just in terms of it is like a newer um, framework and uh, they've put in a lot of work in order to make the experience of creating a full stack application more effortless. So I really, I did enjoy like going through um, when I went through the tutorial last, I'm sure some things have changed since then, but being able to get up and running a basic application with all these different routes and such that has like some uh, server-side logic I thought was like super fun and also has a lot of potential for people who are newer to full-stack development or maybe are trying to get up and running more quickly with an application. So I'm most excited, I would say, about the potential of like Next and Redwood and then have a sweet spot for Gatsby just because I did have a lot of learnings from using that technology, even though I'm started to kind of migrate and explore other options um, within the Re uh, React ecosystem. That's like Chris's exact answer to that question is the answer you just gave. <laughs> yeah, I started with Gatsby was my first jam. My second jam was Redwood and my third was actually Next. I've seen the board now, as you want to say, and all the different approaches. Some think that is obviously controversial 
and I would love just to hear your opinion on it, is the Gatsby plugin system. I personally think it's super beneficial, but I've seen a lot of other people think it's very, uh, like, opaque and it loses a lot of value really fast by having it. Um, I really enjoy like knowing that there's all these different Gatsby plugins um, for different like functionality. Usually, like if I'm wanting to create something on my um, Gatsby site, depending on what it is, I'll usually like look to see, okay, is there already like some type of plugin that exists for this functionality either so I can like use that as inspiration or use that directly. Um, so I think definitely in terms of like developer speed, I've appreciated the plugins. I think that there definitely can be friction if it's not exactly designed for your use case because sometimes someone is just trying to solve their one problem when they create these plugins versus trying to solve everyone's problem um, in a more, like a more like robust way. Um, since uh, in terms of the plugins, I know there's like community plugins and then there's some that are more so um, the official like Gatsby org kind of maintains those plugins. So there definitely can be like some differences with the quality of, of the plugins. Um, that are out there, but I would say I've definitely have benefited greatly um, from being able to um, leverage different Gatsby plugins, um, as well as I think that that encourages there being like a more active open source community um, around Gatsby, which is something that had attracted me to Gatsby, that there seems to be a lot of like um, involvement from the community in terms of whether that's like making sure the documentation is up to date and robust or creating these plugins. Um, and that's something that I've seen in like some other communities where they're still kind of like getting their footing um, in terms of like, how do you like connect all of these different parts of like the more, um, I guess, distinct parts of the ecosystem together, which I think Gatsby does a good job of like showing you all the things that exist in the Gatsby universe and they may be um, well-maintained or, or not, and it kind of depends on um, which plugins you use and how you vet them, et cetera. Yeah, I've only ever used a Gatsby plugin once, and so I don't really have a strong opinion one way or the other, but like the one time I tried to use it, it was just to add like syntax highlighting for, for Markdown. And so I found a plugin and there was like two, you know, like a two line snippet of things like add a config. And I, like I added it, and then nothing happened. And it's like, okay, so like, where do I where do I go from here? Like, I, I don't know. The reason I bring it up, and I think it's so interesting to speak to as someone who's used Gatsby a lot, is we're pretty much seeing two ways of the FS Jam go right now. Redwood is saying, oh, you want to add TypeScript, not yeah, TypeScript or Tailwind. Um, here's some generator code to do it as like, we're gonna add it to your project, um, and then it's just installed. But then Blitz and Gatsby and obviously anyone else that's using these plugin system is saying it's isolated, it's isolated, but then it obviously connects into your system. And it to me, it's kind of like, the, the, the best thing about Gatsby plugins is the isolation. But then the worst thing is also the isolation. Mm -hmm. Yes, I definitely. I when I was migrating my website um, from using just like Markdown to actually supporting um, MDX, so that I could write um, JSX within my Markdown files, um, I did run into some issues with like plugins conflicting um, in terms of like how they were parsing the um, AST. So um, yeah, there's definitely or yeah, so there's definitely some gotchas that come into play when it comes to like installing all these plugins from different places 
Um, and there probably could be more like insight into like, how do you solve this thing? Um, I'm pretty sure I probably like Googled it and then got like an inkling, but like the combination of plugins that I use is different than the combination of plugins that somebody else is, is using. Um, so there definitely are like some unique issues that could, could come into effect of like having these like, um, different plugins that aren't necessarily um, designed in a way that's anticipating that you're going to have some other plugin installed. The, I guess my next point to discuss is um, it's very much a Next versus Gatsby thing, but I think it's still so relevant to things like Redwood, is that let's take the example of pulling... Let's take the example of pulling Instagram into your website next um is a lot more ag agnostic is a lot more agnostic on the approach you could use a rest api to pull the api or as you did in one of your tutorials you used a npm package but gatsby obviously does it completely different and says we're going to give you the same syntax for every single gatsby source so that so what that means is it's all laid out the same in the way you would understand it. And then you can pass it through, obviously, things like Gatsby image. Which method do you think is better? Um, I think I like the flexibility that comes with um, with Net. Um, I feel like it's more so you're writing um, JavaScript as opposed to like writing JavaScript specifically in the way that Gatsby um, is, is saying that it should be written in. Um, so I have appreciated that I, I had put up like a small next site where I use GraphQL. I've had some where I've used um, a normal like REST API setting set up. So I have appreciated like having that flexibility and being able to choose like the technology, um, the underlying technology that I think makes more sense for me or like whatever I'm most interested in using at that time. Um, and I think there also comes in, like, there's going to be more, um, potentially more examples, um, just since, like, the way that Next is using it is, like, more, um, you can abstract that to, like, any React application or, or, or whatnot. So it's not specific to, uh, or JavaScript application is not specific to, okay, this is, there's, like, some Next specific things, but, oh, like, the overall patterns, um, I think are more transferable, which I think is definitely valuable, especially seeing, like, how, um, quickly there are shifts in terms of like what frameworks people are, are most excited about um and, and are are growing so yeah i was curious if you have had any experience with like viewers filtering and that kind of stuff or if you're totally in the react world yeah so i would say i am like fully into the into the react ecosystem um so i have attended a um spelt meetup um uh this was before the pandemic, I attended a Svelte meetup in, in New York City. So it was like cool seeing um, the the capabilities of Svelte. I've participated in some view communities. I had tried, um, I think it was Gridstone. There was like a, a, a view framework that's supposed to be like Gatsby. Um, so I thought it was cool, like me, like being able to transfer the knowledge that I knew about Gatsby to like building, I built like a very like MVP website. Um, and there was like some views specific syntax that I had to look up. So I've just like touched, dabbled in those enough to like put up a very basic, like I spent a couple hours working on this um, type of website, um, but I haven't had the opportunity um, to um, use those technologies in production yet. Yeah, I'm very much in the, the vein of talk-driven development. So I signed up for a talk for Nuxt 
and for the composition API and for Elder, which is a spelt one. So I ended up giving talks about all those. So I learned a decent amount of some some view and, and some spelt. Yeah, I really enjoy them, and I think that there's a lot of you know interesting places to go with it. Mm-hmm, definitely. My last question is: If Redwood could take anything from Next.js or Gatsby, what would it be? Um, I'm trying to remember what it's called. I like like um Next.js, Next.js how um you can do like the static uh the server side generation the service side generation on demand. Um, so um I know when there was a huge like Next.js conference. Um, they had it set up so you would like register with your, you would log in with GitHub um, and then they would generate a ticket URL for you. And then as soon as you share that on social media, it would have like your GitHub image, um, your ticket number and things like that. So I feel like there's a lot of like very cool like SEO um, and um, other things that you can kind of do with like that, um, that static on demand generation that they're doing. Or sorry, not static, but yeah. So what that is that Monica's just said is was for what Monica just said was for the next conf 2020. What they've also did for that conference is made the software that they made to host the conference open source. So if you actually go to Vercel and their GitHub, you can literally boot up their uh, conference software and run your own conference is really really cool and it's got that code in to do that um, uh, image system thing it's in there it's open source that's how I got it that reminds me though I need to check that out because I was excited when I saw the open source it but I haven't like had a chance to actually look at the code because I was super excited about it before it was officially open source um, so I need to check that out it's called Virtual Event Starter Kit. I'll put it in the chat. I'd like to get into uh, some of the work you're doing for Newzella. This is a passionate topic for me, having been a, a previous teacher. It says that you're building educational technology. So I'll be curious kind of what that means. Yeah, so I joined Newzella near the end of last year. So I'm still like relatively new. I feel like I'm onboarding, learning, learning all of the things. But in terms of what Newzella does, uh, they're an ed tech platform. They um, produce different like news articles or like primary sources for students to read in the classroom. Um, and the really cool thing is that um, we have technology that is making sure that students are reading um, the content at, at the most appropriate like reading level for them. Different students within the same classroom can like get the same content, but it'll be like more tailored to where they're at. Um, so it's a really way to a really great way um, to make learning more accessible um, to students regardless of um, where they're from. And then we've also been doing a lot of um, great work to make sure that that we're um, providing with classrooms is really showing like a breadth of like um, different experiences so that every student is really represented in the, the type of content that they're reading. And in terms of the work um, that I'm doing, um, I am uh, working on really like enhancing what does that homepage experience look like when you're logged in, when you're seeing all of the different content that is available for you um, to consume. I've still like learning tons of stuff, but really excited about like the, the mission um, and um, the product. Yeah, that's super cool. And that's really interesting what you said about how it tailors the specific reading level to the students, because this is something that I, I kind of was getting into back when I was still in education, is just the idea of how 
we're able to use computers and data and hopefully get somewhere to we have an education system that works slightly better than, than what we have now. And it was something I was really passionate about and then became kind of jaded about for a while just because of like the problems that come along with algorithmic stuff in, in general, you know? So I'm curious like how you protect against like bias in that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So I would say I can't, I wouldn't necessarily say that I could speak to that in terms of, I guess in terms of like the framework, a lot of that stuff was like, you know, put into place before I joined the company and the team that controls how the different um, reading levels are like generated in, in such of that nature is outside of my team. But that is definitely like a, a huge concern of making sure that we're not like inadvertently introducing um, different biases because like working in software, we know that like anything that we're any products that we're creating, any technology we're creating is going to have like somewhat some of the biases that different developers have, like everyone has their biases. I was just sharing with someone, um, there's a GitHub repo called Awesome Falsehoods, um, and it's all different types of topics in terms of like, what are these assumptions that developers make when they're building technology? So it could be about like names or um, geographical locations. And there's like just so many like cultural things that come into play. Like you can't assume that someone has like only one full name or like what is a full name that really varies based on the the context. Yeah, in general, you just have to be like very aware of with people and, and, and real, real um, data. There's just like so many different edge cases to keep in mind and to not like try to minimize the enforcing or reinforcing um, different biases as we build things for sure. I just hope there's a dyslexic mode. Yeah, but that definitely, I know a lot of people who, um, who have needed uh, accommodations for dyslexia. I think I'm hoping to see more of a shift in general in web development, like being more aware of accessibility, because I think that something that it can sometimes be an afterthought. There's definitely a lot of great like automation tools and such to kind of get a baseline level of accessibility. But I feel like as a web developer, I'm still learning things like all the time about um, accessibility that I wish I had known sooner. So I'm hoping to see that continue to get better. Yeah, I'm actually trying to lead that charge in Redwood right now. We had um, a live stream with an accessibility expert, Ben, who kind of went through our docs with me and kind of like made some some comments about, about it. Yeah, it's one of those things where there's like, there's the level within the framework itself, making like whatever it's doing accessible. And then also giving guidance to people building Redwood apps, how their apps are, are accessible. So that was, we were focusing more on the latter and there's still ongoing work like the router to make that accessible and then dt actually brought up the idea of how do we then make the redwood organization accessible so then things like the the website like do we have alt text you know stuff like that yeah there's there's so many different levels to to think about and i'm I'm trying to wrap my mind around that and kind of get more people in this verse thinking of that kind of stuff i'm gonna hopefully get ben on the show do you know what i love about being a developer and being dyslexic it doesn't matter if the variable is spelt wrong as long as it's consistently spelt wrong it's no problem yes that is true when you started doing egghead had you already been making content before or was that kind of your first foray into it like how did you get into the content creation game so when i started uh with egghead that was my first time creating uh, video content. So in terms of the types of content that I had made prior to that was creating like conference talks and presenting at conferences, presenting at meetup events. So kind of going through that whole uh, process of 
like creating somewhat of a like small curriculum, presenting it to an audience of different um, experience levels, very different format than Egghead. And then I also have been writing articles, so um, more like tutorials and such. So I would say it was mostly more similar to like the tutorials, but really like getting having the opportunity to like walk through actually what you're doing, which I think is cool because I think with tutorials, I'm always like, I want to like show you as much code as possible. Like I always try to show like a full example at the end of the article so that you have like the context. But I think it's kind of hard when you're like showing like step by step to also show that context. So I think it's great. Like with screencasts that you can really show like the whole breadth of like what the application looks like. It's easier to emphasize certain things. Um, and so when I uh, signed up to be an Egghead instructor, they actually have very robust um, onboarding. Um, so as I was making my first video, I was able to, to have someone at Egghead who I could work closely with, bounce ideas off of, kind of like get a feel for how to, I learned how to like edit videos and um, all of that such. So it was definitely like a combination of leaning on my experience, uh, creating content in different formats and then um, leaning in on the expertise of the folks at Egghead um, for additional support to create like the actual video content and also tailoring it to how Egghead creates content. Um, they have a guide called How to Egghead, um, which is open source and they kind of walk through like what their approach is to. Can't be longer than three minutes. Three minutes too long. <laughs> Yes, they want to be bite-sized because, like, it, it makes sense if you want to learn a very specific thing. Like, if you can find a video that is, like, the title tells you exactly what's happening, you you watch the video for three minutes, and then you can move on to the next thing. I think that's great. Um, I haven't created YouTube videos, but I know, like, it seems like every YouTube video is, like, a minimum of, like, 10 minutes. So <laughs> it's definitely, like, couldn't be a different audience or for the same audience but at a different time so i i do like appreciate the the bite-sized videos you also mentioned you did meetup talks i'm just kind of curious I've, I've done a ton of meetup talks do you remember what your first meetup talk was like what the topic was yes um if i recall correctly my first meetup talk was um about time traveling and git um so i talked about um how does like how what are the kind of differences between git and github um, and how GitHub is using the server time from your like Git commits, which is using your computer's local time, which you can like set your computer local time to whatever you want. Um, so I had like, as I was debugging an, an issue um, with certain dates that was that were appearing in production, um, I had to like manually adjust the clock on my computer and then I like made my fix. Um, pushed up my changes and then it was like, oh, you committed this like two weeks in the future. And I was like, what, what happened? Um, so it was just like a fun, like lightning talk um, where I could share like something that I learned at work um, as well as giving people um, a deeper understanding, a little, like a little bit of a deeper understanding about like how Git and GitHub are, are working and how you can um, manipulate uh, Git data if you want to. Yeah, I think everyone should have to give a Git talk at least once in their life, just because, like, it's going to force you to learn more about Git than you probably already do, because all of us only know, like, 5% of Git, I feel like. Yes, I like always learning more things about um, Git. Like, I know, I think over the summer, I learned about um, Git uh, bisects. Like, if you want to go and look at, um, determine exactly when a regression was introduced, 
you can like easily like it's kind of like a binary search of like eliminating like half of your get history every single time you go down uh and like check to see like oh did this did this commit have a problem did this have the bug and if not like figuring out okay i need to look more in the future i need to look more in the past and like actually identifying where the bug was introduced which i think could be like a huge um time saver if you like aren't really sure what's going on um to really like um drill into that but yeah i feel like git has just like so many things under the hood and features that a lot of people aren't aware of but could make their um their lives easier um, and more productive git is one of them things that when my commit doesn't commit, I just, like, want to cry in the corner and be like, leave me alone, just just work. Or, like, you know, when two branches don't merge, and you're like, okay, I got this, two out of the three files down, and then the last file is your yarn lock file, and you're like, I'm done. Just, just delete the file and remake it. Yeah, almost every mistake I've ever made in live presentations was based around the Git part of whatever I was demonstrating. It's always where the margin of error would come in. Cool. Um, let's get into... So, let's, you mentioned a little bit about React Ladies, but I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. Kind of like where... Obviously, now I'm sure it's remote, but like where where is it used to be based? And kind of like what... Obviously, it's about React, but is there any more specific kind of areas you're into? Or just kind of like all React? So we are focused on React. Um, we've uh, had events where like someone will talk about um, React Native, which is a subset of React, um, but a different API. Um, we've also had events about accessibility, internationalization, et cetera. Um, and a lot of what drove me to want to create this community was that I, um, I've attended a lot of meetups, a lot of women in tech meetups, which I found, um, especially as I was like, just getting started with technology, I found very like welcoming environments um, to to learn more about, to connect with other folks. Um, and so when I was learning React, I really wanted to create a community and meet people who um, were also learning React or maybe who were more seasoned and excited about it. Um, so that is what led me to create the meetup. Um, and so I created the meetup group and um, when you create a group, they actually like announce it to like a, a, re a region of, of people. And so as I created it, I had like a few hundred people who joined the, the group shortly after its creation, um, which was really cool. And then um, I did have a little bit of like a chicken and the egg kind of problem of like, okay, I want to have my first event, but I don't know what date because I don't have a location, but I don't have a location because I don't have a date. Um, and then uh, I believe I put out a message to the group like, hey, we're looking for a, an event venue for an upcoming event. And then someone uh, pretty shortly after uh, reached out and they were as a member of the group and they said their company would love to host us. So um, there was definitely a lot of like enthusiasm from, uh, from the beginning um, about people coming together and learning more about React, um, which was really cool. Um, and then I also had the opportunity to uh, connect with Reactius uh, girls, which is based in London and Berlin, because um, they saw the work that I was doing in New York, um, and there was obviously some like overlap, um, and I had the opportunity to speak at their um, first conference in, um, I believe it was in 2019, um, and so, uh, so yeah, I don't, I can't, I'm trying to remember which initial <laughs> I was going to ask, actually, what year did you first start learning React? So I started uh, learning React um, maybe like 2017 in terms of like actually diving into it. Um, 2018 
um, the the job that I had required me to write React full time. Um, so I had to quickly get up to speed with a lot of the um, React things. But I, I remember still being like relatively new to React um, around the time that they announced React Hooks. Um, and I had I had the opportunity to attend a React Conf that year, so I was there when the announcement happened. Um, which was cool since that's like, seems to be like, people are still, you know, hooks, hooks, everything hooks. Um, so there's, um, so yeah, there's a lot of excitement about that. So yeah, I feel like I've only been in the, the React community for a short time, but I've seen a lot of um, like shifts as, as um, suspense is becoming a thing and um, the shift from to um, uh, more hooks based um, development, which is good because I felt like the, um, previous way with all the different life cycle methods was a bit com more confusing so i have like the whole switch to, to hooks yeah i like hooks i never really learned classes in the first place because like we started learning around the same time but i spent like a year on like python machine learning before eventually switching to to react so that's why i'm kind of like a year behind in the in the react stuff but so i got to basically learn hooks first like i never really they never really taught us like they kind of had class components but it was like the second week after we already learned hooks it was like here's this other thing that isn't going to make sense to you. <laughs> when we talk about inclusivity, it's quite easy to, not in a bad way, but to be a man and to be white and just say, I'm doing everything I need to do. What would you say is the easiest step to be more inclusive every day in your developer life? That's a good question. I mean, I think probably just like being, I think in general, the number one thing is like treating people how you want to be treated. Um, maybe like may being mindful of like if you're in a meeting how much space are you taking up uh, I think just yeah overall just like being more aware I think from what I've seen as a community organizer there definitely is like a lot of opportunity for um, community organizers to set the tone as to what inclusion looks like I would say like a base level having a code of conduct but there's like so much more to actually creating like inclusive community where people feel safe and and welcome and everyone feels like they can contribute to the the community so uh yeah those are like i guess what i would say like for the the base level of like fostering more inclusion is just like being mindful of like how you treat other people also also being aware of like your identities like everyone has their like privileges um, and I think some of that is just like being aware of what are, what are those things that you're, you're bringing into the room, the conversation. And if there are opportunities to lift up other people, um, how can you do that to promote other people in their work? What ways can you do that? I guess my next question is there's a massive push to get more women into STEM subjects. How do you encourage it without it being forced, if that makes sense? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, I think there's plenty, there's a lot of women who are interested in, in STEM. So really like creating those communities where um, people can feel welcome and, and, and all of that, even if there aren't, like, even if it's like, okay, well, I'm in the minority, but I know that um, this community, like, is, uh, is intentional about like the type of space that they're creating. Um, something that I have seen um, a lot of, uh, or I'm starting to see more um, people who speak at conferences do is uh, creating a speaker writer. Um, so there's a company called The Pudding, uh, which does like these cool like interactive um, journalism um, pieces. Um, so they've recently open sourced a um, speaker writer for meaningful and inclusive events. 
Um, so some of the things that you'll see um, that people may include in a rider. Um, so this is something that you're telling, if someone asks you to speak at an event, you're sharing with them that there are these requirements that need to be met for me to speak at an event. Um, so some things I've seen, especially pre-pandemic, um, were speakers making sure that they're getting paid some type of honor honorarium, um, that accommodations are being provided. I've seen speakers request that like all speakers are compensated. Um, similarly, just in terms of like wanting to improve the, the diversity of like who has access to speak at these types of events. Um, like I know someone who's had to fundraise to, to get the funds in order to be able to speak at different tech conferences, which I think is unacceptable. Like this person um, brings a lot of um, great things based on their background, um, but because of their financial situation, they don't have a company that is going to financially back them to attend these events. There's some like different levels of access. So I know like there are some speakers who are intentional about making that a requirement if they're going to speak at an event that there's no like financial barriers for people to actually speak at the event, as well as um, wanting there to be a certain amount of scholarships that are available for people to attend the event or for the event to be free or low cost. Um, those are some things I've seen or um, speakers wanting there to be some level of diversity in the either the speaker lineup or making sure that there's no panels where everyone has like the same I identity or you only see people of a certain identity on panels that are about their identity. Um, so those are like some of the things that I've seen people outline in, in their speaker rider. And I'm hoping as more people are either adopting speaker riders or just like bringing more awareness to them, that that will kind of shift what like different conferences and spaces look like so that the people who are attending those or maybe now there'll be more people who have access to those events. Um, they're able to see like a wider range of um, the type of people that can contribute to those events or be a part of those events. So that's something that I've seen. Like I've, from what I've seen, it seems like a really like great way for people to try to introduce change in terms of like if someone is wanting to speak at an event, there is like some, uh, I don't know if power is the right word, but there's kind of like some ability to affect change. If this event really wants you to speak, they're hopefully going to meet your requirements. Have a happy path. You want to have a happy path for them, right? Yes. <laughs> or like compromise on some things. Um, I also know like having a code of conduct is usually like a base level like thing that's in a lot of the speaker writers. But I definitely recommend checking out the um, putting uh, that they open source. It's called Speaker Writer for Meaningful and Inclusive Events. And it kind of covers how, why they wrote out the, the requirements that they did. Um, they're not necessarily saying every event needs to meet all the requirements, but just like have a breadth of things that they like would use to determine whether or not um, an event is a good fit for them or not. Yeah, we'll include a link to that in the show notes. My last question on inclusivity. I'm an entrepreneur and I'm slowly building my company of, you know, developers and people. And I can say I want it to be inclusive. I want it to, you know, hire people who are bringing different opinions but how do I do that if everybody that applies for the role is white males how do I go further to make sure that I am doing what I say I want to be done if that makes sense because it's quite easy to me to just think oh you look at the 10 people that applied and you pick one when should you also be going further and trying to help other people apply. 
So I definitely think there's like a lot of potential a lot of outreach that you can do. I am a member of an organization called Dev Color, which is for Black software engineers. It's a professional network. So there definitely are, like I would say, for different companies, opportunities to collaborate with organizations like Dev Color. I know there's a lot of different um, like meetups for women in tech. So I definitely think that there's there are groups that are have like a lot of people who are um, software engineers who may not know about the opportunity that you that you have available um so trying to connect with those organizations i've also seen people who like share on twitter that they're hiring or they know someone who's hiring and they're looking for uh, like a diverse range of applicants kind of like encouraging people to apply anyway i know um there have been like studies that show like men are more likely to apply to jobs even if they don't meet all the requirements but that a lot of times women tend to say like, oh, if I don't meet 100% of the requirements, I'm not qualified. I have no idea what that looks like for like other identities, but I definitely think that there are there are opportunities to kind of further engage with specific communities if you do want to encourage more people to apply. But I think just a lot of looking for jobs kind of, in my experience, has come from like word of mouth. So if someone's not like somewhat in your distant network, then they're probably going to be more likely or less likely to, to hear about the opportunity. So I think like having some level of outreach is definitely important um, to try to bring in more new perspectives and such. It's awesome to hear and to know about because you can say, oh, yeah, I support whoever working with me. But then if everybody around you looks exactly like you, you're not necessarily contradicting yourself, but you're not supporting the other people to come in. Well, that was really all my questions. <laughs> Are there other projects that you that you like to talk about? Other things you're working on that you're excited about? I'm trying to think. And I'll also be curious to talk about the, the Redwood Structure stuff as well, if you want to get into that. Yeah, um, that would be cool. Yeah, I would say in general, like I... Probably, I would say 2020 is when I got, like, more, like, involved in open source overall. I had the opportunity to work um, with the New York Public Library on their um, ebook technology. And so that is, for the most part, open source. So it was really cool, like, being able to um, contribute to this open source project in a meaningful way. So I had the experience of, of doing that and kind of working within an organization that was really invested in open source. So that was that was that experience. And then I did have the opportunity to start working um, on Redwood and getting some exposure to some of the, the underlying like structure of Redwood. That was cool, but also a very different experience than my my experience with working with the ebook reader technology was also different than my experience of other like contributions that I've made to open source um, as I like am working on something and then I'm like I want to improve this thing so I have like the opportunity with Redwood to see okay this issue has been reported by someone else I haven't run into it yet but I'm like love to jump in and figure out how to um, make this better or ready for um, 1.0 which is like a huge um, milestone that Redwood was working towards when I started uh, contributing. Yeah, let's set the context also for our listeners of what the structure package is, because the, the comment you made about it being very different from an e-reader is like a massive understatement. <laughs> the, the structure package is basically like this huge, massive code base that is aware of your entire Redwood project. I think it makes like a giant AST that is essentially your whole Redwood project. The idea being that once you have something like this, you can have better error handling, you have better just knowledge of your whole thing with better tooling around it. So this is what Aldo has spent a lot of time working on and we're going to get him on the podcast and have a long, probably like a two hour long talk about all this stuff. What kind of issues did you run into when you were using it? 
So in terms of um, when I started contributing to the Redwood structure package, I had only used like Redwood as like, oh, um, this seems interesting. Let me see like how it's working under the hood. So one of the first things that I needed to figure out when I was um, contributing to Redwood was how do you actually like test these changes? So I attended a um, Redwood meetup um, and at the meetup, this was online, there was a demo walking through like, okay, this is how you develop Redwood locally. So you need to have like the Redwood, Redwood uh, repository open. I think that's the one where they're like, if you're at this repo, you're probably in the wrong place. Yeah, that was a create Redwood app, yeah. Yeah, that's like the underlying API for Redwood. And then you also have to have separately an instance of the, the Redwood app running and point that to the local instance you have of, of like the Redwood API. So like for me, just like being able to attend that meetup, hearing some people who had already contributed to Redwood or who maybe even were like wrote the first few lines of code for Redwood and getting a sense of like how to actually run the package or, or develop the package was something that I found super helpful and got me to a place where I was like, okay, I feel comfortable like contributing. And then in terms of the things that I was contributing to, so you were saying that there was like the abstract, abstract um, syntax tree. So one of the things that I um, worked on was making sure that, um, so with the structure um, package, um, there's some diagnostics you can run to kind of understand, like, is there something funny going on with your, like, application that's Redwood specific? So one of the things, um, there's, like, these different diagnostics that run. So um, I updated it so that if you create, so you can create a not found route, but if you try to create that and, like, wrap it around, like, a private tag, which would require the user to be authenticated um, as a certain user to view it, making sure that that throws an error. Because if you have a 404 component and you don't want that to be in a private tag, like, that needs to be a public page. So I was able to go in and see, like, how are these other diagnostics, um, how are they parsing the um, abstract syntax tree and um, create my approach and solution for that. And some of that involved, like, some back and forth with other contributors to, to get a sense of, like, what the best way was to approach that. And then also something that uh, everyone has is that... Um, there's like a VS Code um, integration of, that works for Redwood. Wanting VS Code to know like, okay, if this is a private file or a private route, how can we make that file look different in VS Code to indicate that it's a different type of route than another type of file? So that was something that I was also able um, to uh, contribute to. Yeah, that's super cool. Because like, I can say as someone on the Redwood core team, there's people on the core team who look at the structure package where like, we have no idea what this thing is doing. A Aldo is uh, a mad genius. And it's the type of stuff he he writes is David said, it's like the largest commits that ever happened are always Aldo commits. So yeah, it's, it's super cool. That you're able to get in there and get your hands on it and actually like start to contribute because I can only imagine like, you probably know more about the internals of Redwood than I do. Yeah, no, it was definitely like a learning experience because I had no idea what I was <laughs> walking into. But um, like you said, there's a lot of like people within the Red Redwood community that are willing to share what they've learned as they've worked on Redwood. So I found that like super beneficial, like as someone who was new to contributing to Redwood, because I think that's like the biggest thing with open source software. Like if you are, if you are going to contribute, like finding a project that is like open to new contributors, like not all projects are like welcoming of new contributors just because like different maintainers have different bandwidth or maybe they have like a certain vision for the the product that doesn't necessarily align with outside contributors i think definitely like it, it made a big difference like knowing that that the community was excited about me contributing and that people were available to to help me as i was as i was contributing and to help me get more 
knowledge about how the the underlying structure works. I have heard though that like some things have a lot of things have may have shifted and changed since I last contributed. So I definitely need to like check that out and probably get caught up. <laughs> but yeah, that was definitely my experience uh, with Redwood. That's cool. Yeah, no, it's re- really good to hear that because we we put a lot of thought and a lot of effort in into that, and we always hope that it, it actually comes across. So that's that's always good good to hear for from us that you know we're we're practicing what we preach. You know. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, anything else that you like to talk about before we kind of close it out here? I think that's all I had. Is there anything else that you all wanted to to chat about? I think it's cool. You're in so many different areas, like doing so many different things. I, I feel like I'm I'm someone who I'm always you know trying to do a, mil- a million things at once. So seeing someone who's able to, like balance that successfully is always <laughs> inspiring. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the one question I wanted to ask is if you're a listener and um, you want to help Monica, you can sponsor Monica on GitHub. And what does that allow you to do would be my final question. The sponsorship that I get on GitHub allows me to like continue like spending more time contributing to open source as well as all of the the content that I create, educational material I create is free for for folks to use. Um, So also supporting that work. When I have the opportunity, I try to give um, free workshops for different um, organizations within the community. So I would say like anyone who sponsors my work is just like allowing me to dedicate more time to doing the things that I'm, I'm, I'm doing for free. I think it's definitely important to have as much information be like uh, learning material be like free and accessible. There's a lot of great resources, I think, um, within the web space, but just like continuing to contribute to that because there is like things change like so quickly that things quickly come out, become out, out of date or um, something that I write, write may resonate with people in a way that other material doesn't. I have this article on um, Reduce, JavaScript Reduce, and it's one of those articles that like, it's, it's pretty like much a basic overview of like, how does this thing work? But I definitely have revisited that article since I've written it and just been like, oh, hey, I just need like a quick refresher. So I think that um, I, I try to make like create things that I think that other people can like revisit in the future as like a reference. And whenever I write articles, I'll like open source the code. So that also is lived as, as a, a learning resource uh, for people to um, benefit from. Yeah, a code article without a repo is useless. It's 100% useless. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, how does this work? I need like context. Like code context is just like so important. I've had sometimes when I'm reading like a uh, like tutorial or documentation where I'm like, I don't really understand like how this line of code like fits into the bigger picture. And there's this website called grup.app, which allows you to search GitHub repos. And I found that it's like a better search than the default GitHub search. And I found that like super helpful, just like copy pasting this code from like a tutorial docs and like then getting like a full application that's using this and like getting a, a better sense of like, oh, okay, this is how it all connects. Like, um, cause sometimes I think that is missing because when someone writes something, they may be in a certain frame of mind, but like, if I'm like, okay, I'm completely new to this technology or I've never done this this particular type of thing, like being able to see um, that like bigger picture for me has been like super helpful. So I just try to like give back because I feel like I've gained a lot from all of the things that other developers have put out there in the world for um, people to um, learn from or use. So yeah. I think that's about it. Then go ahead and give your give the listeners your contact information, like how would be the best way to get in touch with you or, or follow your stuff. 
So in terms of uh, my contact information, so if you, my website, monica.dev or aboutmonica.com. Amazing. <laughs> go to the same place, but that's pretty much my homepage on, on the internet. And then I'm on Twitter and my handle is in digital color, which is actually a new handle for me. So because I, I started like exploring um, digital art um, and kind of like in that transition, I decided to update my handle. So I would say probably like my website or Twitter are, are the best ways um, to connect with me. And my website has my like more contact information if you actually want to send me uh, a message or something. Yeah. My only after-party question would be, what's a better colour, Gatsby purple or Redwood red? Or is it next black? I think the black, because (laughs) I I like purple. My website is purple, but the Gatsby purple is, is, it's a very strong purple, I think. Um... Next is clean. I do really, really like Next and Vercel's whole kind of visual aesthetic. Yeah. Like, has totally ripped it off. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's the aesthetic. Yeah. Basically, yeah. I do. I do like they've made it really clean with the uh, with it. I think. Yeah. Surprisingly, because black could also be like a harsh color, but they've made it work. There we go. Next black is the the <laughs> best the best framework color. <laughs> Original. All they had to do was. Pick black, any shade of it.